call upon the name of the Lord and ask for his help as we give our attention to the preaching and the hearing of his word. Our righteous, holy, and majestic God, we thank you in the name of Christ that you have made yourself known to us in former times through various ways, through the prophets, through men that you had raised up and appointed to minister and to proclaim on your behalf. And, but in these latter days, you have re- revealed yourself fully, finally, completely in the person and the work of your own dear Son. And we pray that as we open his word together, that it is his voice that we expect to hear. It is the voice of the true and living God that speaks to us as your word is proclaimed. And we pray that our our hearts would be eager, not only to understand the word, but to give our, our eager submission to it. Conform us and shape us more and more into the very image of your Son. Cause us to grow in our love for one another. Cause us to grow in our holiness as we seek to walk before you in integrity and in truth. We ask this for Christ's sake and for our good. Amen. Will you take your seat and turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 11, and you may want to put your finger there, a bookmark. We're going to turn around a little bit today into several places. The sermon today is going to be different than usual. Uh, ordinarily, I, I walk through books of the Bible. That's kind of our pattern here at GFBC Conroe, is, is expository preaching. Now, when we are committed to that, there are times that there is a doctrinal feature that comes out of a text, or a doctrinal question that is maybe prudent to address separately. One of the, the features of expository preaching, one of the commitments of expository preaching, is to submit ourselves to the text so that the Holy Spirit governs what is the main idea of any given text, and that's what we preach. So, for example, two weeks ago, as we're working through systematically through the book of Judges, we came to the narrative of Jephthah. And, of course, there's a lot going on in the life of Jephthah. We looked at that two weeks ago. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. But there, in the midst of that narrative, is this tragic vow, this rash vow, this foolish vow that Jephthah makes that ultimately costs the life of his own daughter, his only child. And, And reflecting further on that text... And then also interacting with many of you, I've had several questions over the last two weeks about oaths and vows and those sorts of things. So what I want to do is come back around and deal somewhat topically this morning with the the subject of oaths and vows. What do the scriptures teach to us about this subject of oaths and vows? I gave an assertion, a condemnation of Jephthah for his rash vow. But it was primarily an assertion, and I want this morning to build the scriptural argument, and then we'll come back and look at Jephthah through hopefully what we've learned from the scriptures about oaths and vows. Over the last year, providentially, I've been called upon in the civil sphere twice. One as just an ordinary jury duty summons, and I wasn't selected, but I still had to be sworn in. Many of you have had that. Raise your right hand, and do you swear or affirm? I also had to give testimony in a felony criminal trial in the sentencing phase. And again, I was asked to raise my right hand and to either swear or affirm. 
can you guess which one I did? Did I merely affirm or did I swear? Why or why not? Thomas Manton, the, the Puritan, he was one of the, those at the Westminster Assembly, says, doctrine is but the drawing of the bow. Application is the hitting of the mark. Doctrine is but the drawing of the bow. It's a graphic image, isn't it? But application is the hitting of the mark. So as we think about this topic of oaths and vows, may it be our goal today, not merely to draw the bow, but to hit the mark. As, as, as the Spirit of God, through his word, searches us, and examines us, may we not only examine Jephthah, and we'll do that, but may we also examine ourselves in light of God's word and see, are we, are we understanding these things? Are we seeking to be faithful and growing in holiness with respect to God's teaching on oaths and vows? So here's what I want to do. I want to lay out, first of all, the, the biblical teaching, the affirmative case for oaths and vows. What does the Bible say about this subject? Then secondly, we're going to come back and consider what are some of the common errors that have been made among the people of God today and historically with respect to oaths and vows. And then we'll come back to Judges 11 and evaluate Jephthah and not only the taking of his vow, but the keeping of that vow using that criteria from the Scripture. So let's turn first of all to Judges chapter 11. I'm going to read several passages to begin with. Their selection of briefer passages. But in, in Judges chapter 11, uh, for those of you who were, uh, who were visiting or who were not here uh, two weeks ago, we dealt with this text uh, in the life of Jephthah over two sermons, two weeks ago and three weeks ago. But here in verse 30, verse 30 let's back up to 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Then down at verse 35, as Jephthah comes back, or verse 34, I'm sorry, when Jephthah comes back victorious, Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Now, Jephthah's operating under a set of beliefs here, a set of convictions here. And we have to ask, is he right or is he wrong? And why? And before we just dismiss that or just assume, well, this is, this is distasteful to us, the prospect of offering up a daughter as a burnt offering, and, and because that's distasteful, we want to reject that. Is that sufficient grounds? Or is there a better biblical argument for why Jephthah should have recanted his own vow and why he should not have made the vow to begin with? So let's look in the first place at an affirmative case regarding oaths and vows. Let's, let's first kind of lay out the biblical teaching. And I'm going to start with a few Old Testament texts, then I'm going to move to uh, our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. 
and then another passage later on in Matthew. And I'm going to use the terms oaths and vows interchangeably today. But there is a distinction. If we want to put a sharper point on our pencil, we can make a distinction between an oath and a vow. Think of it this way. An oath is horizontal. It's it's between and among men. And a vow is made to the Lord. Sam Waldron puts it this way. He says, vows are solemn promises made to the Lord. Oaths are solemn promises made before the Lord, but to men. The purpose of the oath is confirmation. The purpose of the vow is commitment. So let's think first about some of the the Old Testament texts. I'm not going to turn here. I'm just going to read them to you because they're all one or two verses. So just just listen to them. You can write them down if you want in your notes. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This, of course, is the third commandment. This is when, when the Lord appears at Sinai, he thunders, his voice is heard from Sinai, and he gives the Decalogue, he gives the Ten Commandments. Then in Deuteronomy, as the people of God are preparing to go into the Promised Land, there's a series of sermons that Moses preaches to the people. And in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, we read this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. There's a command, if you're going to swear, you swear by God's name. And then in Leviticus 19, verse 11, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So there are several features that come out of these Old Testament commands, and there are others. I'm giving you a, a sampling here. The Lord has said, number one, that if, you, if you swear, you swear by my name. You do not swear falsely. And that when you swear... You are invoking the holiness of my name that must never be profaned. When you speak and call upon me as a witness, you are profaning my name if you do that falsely or rashly. Now, let's turn together to the New Testament. We're going to jump way on ahead to our Lord's teaching at the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew chapter 5. What we find in the Sermon on the Mount is a series of six statements that Jesus makes and repeats the same phrase. He repeats this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus is presenting himself as the true lawgiver. He stands above Moses as the lawgiver. Moses was a spokesperson for God. He was a covenant mediator for God, but he was not the lawgiver. He was the law spokesman. Jesus is the law giver. So Jesus has this repeated refrain. And by the, point we, by the time we get to oaths, he has already dealt with the sixth commandment dealing with murder. You have heard that it was said, you should not murder, but I, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and so on. He also deals with the seventh commandment. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, as the true lawgiver, says here is the motive. Here's the depth. As we plumb the depths of this law, here is all that is binding upon all mankind. Well, then when he gets to oaths in verse 33, he says this again, 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now notice, that's not exactly like any of the texts from the Old Testament that I read to you. See, that's been sort of synthesized by the Jewish leaders and twisted just a little bit. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath for by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now let's go to read one more passage. We'll turn to one more in Matthew 23. Again, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. And he says in verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. If you, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So this is the backdrop. This is, this is the religious and cultural situation into which Jesus is teaching about oaths and vows. This had been so corrupted and so twisted that the, that the leaders of Israel were simply using this, this complex system of oaths in order to make themselves appear publicly very honest and righteous, when in fact their hearts were duplicitous, their hearts were deceptive. Their hearts were rotten to the core. Just as Jesus now speaks to us as the true lawgiver, and he sets the record straight by commanding his disciples to throw away, to turn away from this deceptive system that the religious establishment had promoted. Jesus says they're blind guides. And because they're blind guides, Jesus' disciples don't need to follow them. It's dangerous to follow a blind guide. He should, that we should not follow their practice or their teaching. But we have to avoid replacing one defective theology with another defective theology. So we, we need to note, first of all, what is Jesus not teaching here? He's not forbidding all oaths. If we take his words and press them in a wooden way, go back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now, if we stop there, and we thought this is the only passage in the, all the Bible about oaths and vows, we would come to the conclusion that, okay, we're not supposed to ever, under any circumstances, take an oath or a vow. And some religious communities, some Christian sects over the years, have taken that approach. The Quakers, for example, that, that is their position, that no one can take an oath or a vow that's unlawful under any circumstances. Some of the Mennonites, some of the Amish, have taken a very similar position. But notice... Even here in the text, Jesus modifies what he says. There's not a, when he says, do not take an oath at all, there's not a period there. That's not his final word. He says, either by heaven, 
for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So what he's saying is don't take an oath at all by these lesser things. Because why? What did the Old Testament teach us? If you're going to swear, you swear by what? God's name only. So Jesus, do not take an oath at all by Jerusalem, by the temple, by your own head. Secondly, what is Jesus teaching about oaths and vows? What, what, is, what, is, what is affirmatively commanded? That all oaths were to be in God's name only. And for only serious occasions. What was happening is that the Pharisees were doing what often happens in our culture, where people were just verbally throwing these things around in order to make themselves appear more honest. But Leviticus 19, as we read, said, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. To do such a thing, to, to, to be flippant and throw his name around in these various oaths and vows to the temple, to Jerusalem, to, by your own head, is to profane the name of God. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. In Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind, to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. See, the Pharisees were, were taking liberty here and saying, well, if I swear by the altar, it doesn't count. As long as I don't swear by the gift on the altar, then it doesn't count. And I can, I can say this publicly gain the respect of men by, by appearing honest, but I have no intention of keeping this. And I found a loophole in doing that. And Jesus, that's, that's inconsistent with what the law requires. But there are biblical examples, including with Christ himself, of godly men taking vows. So with respect to the question of should we just forbid ourselves from having entering in any kind of vow, any kind of oath, we look to the examples. For example, God himself swears by his own name. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. When Jesus is taken before Caiaphas, the high priest, he sits mute. He refuses to answer any of the questions until the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. What's he doing? He's putting Jesus under oath. And it's at that point Jesus speaks. So Jesus himself, if he were teaching in chapter 5 that we were not ever under any circumstances permitted to take an oath, then he violated his own teaching when he stood before Caiaphas. The patriarchs, Abram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, often took vows. Paul himself, Paul the Apostle, affirms in multiple occasions with an oath. In 1 Corinthians 1, for example, he says, But I call God as my witness to my soul. He confirms his word by an oath. In Hebrews chapter 6, the Apostle says, People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So it's a, it's a means of confirming the truth 
on a solemn occasion. And we have continuing examples of this. And we have to ask ourselves as Christians, is it permissible for us, for example, to take marriage vows? Well, I hope you would say yes. What about when you go before a civil magistrate, a court of law, an oath of office? Is that permissible? Yes, it is. To take a a covenant of church membership. When we stand before one another and before the Lord and give our vows as members, and we say, by the grace of God, we will perform these duties. Then what exactly is Jesus forbidding then? If he's not forbidding an oath under any and every circumstance... What's he forbidding? He forbids the commonplace and frivolous oaths that were common in his day. Those, he says these are unnecessary, and they are very likely deceptive. They were intended to deceive, and they were wholly unnecessary. He forbids taking an oath by any creature or by any created thing. You do not swear by the temple. You don't swear by your own head. If you're going to swear, you swear by the name of God alone. He is the judge and ruler of all the earth. And Jesus forbids having a deceptive heart. He forbids saying something you know at the time isn't true or is not likely to be true. He forbids not only false oaths and vows, but frivolous oaths, frivolous vows. Now, when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, In general, we think about these six contrasting statements. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. There's three sort of big-picture ideas that we need to think about in the Sermon on the Mount. Is Jesus is the authoritative lawgiver. I mean, he he is, where Moses was a spokesperson, Jesus is actually the lawgiver. He is the eternal, begotten Son of God. But also that our obedience is not merely external. That's what he says when he talks about the the murder, and now you have anger in your heart, you're you're guilty of the same thing with respect to the seventh commandment, adultery. To look at a woman with lust in your heart, or to look at a man with lust in your heart, is is tantamount to adultery because it it is a sin of the heart. So he's saying obedience to me as the lawgiver is not just superficial. It's not just on the outside. So the Pharisees who thought, we're being obedient as long as we keep to the strict letter of the law, as long as we don't swear by God's name, we can swear by these lesser things and violate that even willfully and not be transgressors. That's what they thought. And Jesus says, no, obedience to me has to come from the heart, not just the external things. And thirdly, that sin is personal, not merely legal. And what I mean by that is when, when we sin, we are, we are offending personally a holy God. This is not merely a legal transaction. If, if you pull out of the parking lot this afternoon and you get pulled over a mile down the road for speeding here on 1314, the cop is not personally insulted by this. He shouldn't be. You haven't attacked his person. You've, you've violated a legal standard, and he'll issue a, potentially issue a citation, but it's, but it's just a legal transaction. It is not the same thing when we sin. When we sin, we are personally offending a holy God, and with respect to oaths and vows... We are speaking against his name. We are profaning his name. It offends the very name of God. So this is a violation of the third commandment. So frivolous and superficial oaths are forbidden. By making oaths commonplace, the name of God is diminished. It's profaned. But it's also, it's worse than that. 
when the Pharisees or when others seek to swear by something else other than God, sort of reduce maybe their own liability by not swearing by the name of God, they swear by the temple, they swear by their own head. They are necessarily breaking now the first and second commandments. They're seeking to avoid breaking the third one, now they break the first and second. Because they put something else in place of God. Something else has been offered up as an object of worship rather than Yahweh. Deuteronomy 6, 13, that we cited earlier, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. When we swear by something, the worship of that object is asserted. Listen to John Calvin. He says it's corruption allied to or consistent with idolatry. When we appeal to them to created things, either as having a right to judge or authority to prove testimony, for we must look at the object of swearing. It is an appeal which men make to God to revenge falsehood and to uphold truth. This honor cannot be transferred to another without committing an outrage on the divine majesty. Thus anyone in ancient times, anyone who in ancient times swore by Moloch or by any other idol, withdrew something of what belonged to God because they put that idol in the place of God as possessing an acquaintance with the hearts and as the judge of the souls of men. And in our own times, those who swear by angels or by departed saints take from God what belongs to him and ascribe to them a divine majesty. So to to swear by something less than, to swear by a creature or by a created thing, we are necessarily robbing God of the glory that is due to him and him alone. If we swear by something or someone other than God, we're either taking his name in vain, or we are asserting that something is greater than him. When we say we swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by our own heads, what are we saying? Those things have replaced God. Well, those things are on the same level as God. They are able to confirm the truth of something. But these things also dim the very glory of God from the perspective of the world. Jesus was very concerned among his disciples about their integrity, about their their righteousness before men. The Pharisees, he said, they, they had a false kind of righteousness, an outward righteousness that was of no value before a, a lost and, and dying world. In First in Peter 2, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Not all oaths, not all vows, are taking the name of the Lord in vain. When we take an oath, when we take a vow in a proper way, we're actually exalting the name of God. We are saying he alone is the judge between men. He alone is the one who can see the hidden secrets and hidden motives of a heart. Proper oaths actually exalt the name of Christ to his proper position. So when we take an oath before a civil magistrate, when we stand and take marriage vows, when we stand and take church membership vows, or any other circumstance in which we are asked, in a sense, to raise our right hand and to swear on something, or swear for something, 
We exalt the name of Christ when that's done rightly and honorably and orderly. Now, what, what do we do with this? Let's consider now some common errors, some common sins with respect to oaths and vows, both the time of Christ and all the way back to the time of Jephthah, but also in our present circumstance. What are some common errors? I'm going to give you four. Uh, and these are not complex by any means. The first error is, is missing the very point of Jesus' teaching regarding oaths and vows. The very point of his teaching is to promote truth-telling, to promote a, a, a ye- can I make up a word, a yesness in our speech. To say your yes is yes, your no is no. You don't, if, you're, if you're going to live with integrity before God and before men, you don't need to try to trump that up in ordinary conversation with vows and oaths. Truth-telling in every circumstance is a reflection of what we believe about God's character. Our speech testifies what we believe about the very character of God. If we fudge, shade, exaggerate, bend the truth, white lies, all the whole thing, what are we saying about the character of God? What are we saying about his spirit's work within us? Mark Twain, that great philosopher, said, truth is the most valuable thing we have, so I try to conserve it. But isn't that kind of the general philosophy of our age? That was what Jesus was confronting with the Pharisees. They thought it was a very valuable thing, so they tried to conserve the truth. They tried to be stingy with it. And it seems to be the philosophy of, of our day as well. But are we a people who fundamentally and essentially, as, as the children of God, do we, are we the kind of people who seek truth and seek to tell the truth? The Pharisees and scribes had adopted a number of practices and this elaborate system of of we could call it casuistry, which, which is a deliberate and complex systems and formulas and procedures to, to bend the truth to their will, to shape things according to what will benefit them. And these were a deliberate attempt to favor their, their privileged status and designed to allow one man to deceive other men while keeping an appearance of righteousness. So the first thing that we have to ask ourselves is, do we take this duty to tell the truth seriously? Or are we only take it seriously if we are constrained by force of law under penalty of perjury? Or in ordinary, everyday conversations, are we seeking to be truthful? Plainly truthful. And then as a practical matter, how does this shape even the training of our children? Even as, as you walk along the way with your children, as you get up in the morning when you walk along the way and as you lay down at night and you're teaching the things of God to them, what are you teaching them about truth-telling? By your own example? By your instruction to them? In his wonderful little book called The Duties of Parents, J.C. Ryle says this about the truth, about truth-telling. He says, truth seems to be especially set before us as a leading feature in the character of him with whom we have to do. He never swerves from the straight line. He abhors lying and hypocrisy. Try to keep this continually before your children's minds. Press upon them at all times that less than the truth is a lie. 
that evasion, excuse-making, and exaggeration are all halfway houses towards what is false and ought to be avoided. Encourage them in any circumstance to be straightforward and whatever it may cost them to speak the truth. The first error that we come across with this respect to oaths and vows is using this as a way to sort of shade the truth or hide the truth or conceal the truth or downplay the truth in some way. And, and parents, in the training of our children, do we treat lying and falsehood as something especially serious? I mean, we know in our homes not every infraction is of equal, equal importance. But do we have this area of truth-telling front and center in our children's minds? Do they know... Even as we discipline them, is, are our most severe chastisements reserved for a lying tongue? It ought to be. The, 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 maybe that's more, more spanks, more, more swats for a lie than for an ordinary infraction. Is it, is it treated as something that, that uh, aggravates another offense? But there's a second common error. And we see this all around us. It was common in in the day of Christ, obviously, and it's common in our day. It's the frivolous use of God's name and the frivolous use of authority in general in common conversation and in unnecessary matters. For much of our culture, and, and, and sadly, even among many of us who are professing Christians, we have habits of speech that we need to have the Scriptures search out and identify and give us, by the Spirit's help, power to to forsake. When we say things like, I swear to God, or I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on my own head, or so help me God, this is true. Or we just simply, I swear to you, this is right. And sometimes these are habituated in our speech, and we ought to recognize this is forbidden by the word of God to be frivolous, even if we don't explicitly invoke the name of God. Again, you can't swear by any other thing. If you say, oh, I swear to you, this is true. And you're doing so just frivolously. That's a a pattern of speech that needs to be mortified. There's something at work in our hearts that makes us think, I have to somehow make myself sound more honest than maybe I really am. That's a common error, is the frivolous use of God's name. But it's also the frivolous use of authority. And we see, sadly, this is rampant in our culture. When someone stands in a position of civil authority or ecclesiastical authority and says something that is false, they are speaking under a delegated authority given to them by God. If it's a civil magistrate who stands and says, this is true, when he knows it's a lie. He's profaning the name of God because it's God who gave him that authority. If, if we, in, our, in, in positions where God has placed us, whether that's in the office of mom or dad or the office of pastor or the office of general manager in your workplace or the office of mayor or senator or whatever it is, God has put you there. And if you speak on behalf of that official position falsely, you're using God's name frivolously, indirectly, but no less frivolously. There's a third common error. And this is the idea of just, and I mentioned this already, but rejecting oaths and vows under every circumstance and just saying no matter what the circumstances are, we can't take an oath, we can't take a vow. I mentioned the Quakers, some of the Anabaptists, some of the Mennonites and Amish. 
But we've already seen that Jesus himself responded under a vow. The Apostle Paul invoked the name of God multiple times in an oath. The Old Testament clearly teaches that oaths and vows are sometimes necessary. The fourth common error is forgetting that God's name and God's holiness are the foundation the foundation for all the commandments, including the third commandment, which says, do not take my name in vain, and the ninth commandment, which forbids any falsehood. Why, why is this crucial for us to understand that it's God's name and God's character, God's holiness that are foundation of all these commandments? It's because if we bind ourselves somehow, even inadvertently, we bind ourselves to something that is unlawful, either because we've formally taken an oath or because we have casually and carelessly committed ourselves to something that is unlawful. We dishonor the name of God by thinking he prefers that we keep that unlawful commitment or unlawful oath rather than simply confessing to him that original sin of taking his name in vain and seeking to flee from our obligation. That's, that's an important feature that we, when we come back to evaluate Jephthah, we'll, we'll need that. We dishonor the name of God by thinking that he prefers that we keep our unlawful commitment rather than confessing that original sin of unlawful commitment and casting ourselves upon his mercy. Now I'm going to turn to our confession of faith. You, you have this in the, if you don't have a copy with you, it's in the back of the, the blue hymnal, in the back of your seat. At the, in chapter 23, we have an entire chapter in our confession that's common to the Westminster Confession and the Savoy. This is common to... The, the major reformed confessions of the 17th century. And it's entitled, Of Lawful Oaths and Vows. And, and we see all four of those common errors that are articulated addressed, at least implicitly, here in this confession. There are five paragraphs that I'm going to read here. And, and keep in mind, this is a summary of all that the scriptures teach about oaths and vows. Paragraph 1, we read this. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein the person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calleth God to witness what he swears and to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. So it is to call upon the name of God and the name of God alone. Incidentally, the first line in this paragraph, a lawful oath is a part of religious worship, that's not constraining it to only what happens you know, here at this, on this occasion, on, on the Lord's Day when we gather. It's speaking in a more comprehensive uh, use of this. Like in Romans 12, for example, when, when Paul talks about our, our reasonable response to the gospel is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a, it's a whole life orientation of worship towards God. That's the, that's the backdrop here. In paragraph one, a lawful oath is part of religious worship, meaning the, the ongoing full-bodied worship of God's people before him. Oaths and vows are appropriate in that context. Paragraph two, the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence, therefore to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and is to be abhorred. And you'll notice the scriptural reference there is 
the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Yet, as in matter of weight and moment for confirmation of truth and ending all strife, an oath is warranted by the word of God. So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authorities in such matters ought to be taken. Paragraph 3, whoever, whosoever taketh an oath warranted by the word of God ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therefore to avouch nothing but what he knoweth to be true, and that by rash, false, and vain oaths the Lord is provoked. And, and, for, this, and for them this land mourns. I think we can say with certainty that the same is true in our day. Our land mourns because of prevailing falsehood. You can't turn on anything watching political discourse and not be bombarded with falsehoods. In the marketplace, in in your workplaces, you're facing this all the time. Various forms of dishonesty, whether it's in a formal contract or just interactions among customers and employees and employers and that, that whole realm is, is just flooded with falsehood. And our land mourns. Our culture is sick with lying tongues. Paragraph 4, an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation. We don't twist a word to try to make it mean something else so that we can appear honest. And lastly, a vow which is not to be made to any creature but to God alone is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. But popish, monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. So all four of those common errors are addressed here. Number one, truth-telling is the key point of an oath, and it's a reflection of God's character. Truth-telling is a central feature here. That's, that's, that's the main idea in this subject of oaths and vows. And secondly, frivolous oaths and vows are to be avoided. There's no reason for us in our ordinary circumstances, ordinary speech, ordinary conversations, to be taking oaths, to be swearing by anything or anyone. Thirdly, we don't reject oaths and vows categorically. There are times and occasions when an oath is warranted. When it's done by a lawful authority for a lawful cause and under a lawful circumstance, it is warranted. But fourthly, unlawful vows ought to be forsaken because we must not bind ourselves to anything that is contrary to the Word of God. And, and the specific you know, historical context here, and I mentioned this two weeks ago in the sermon, Many of the reformers had been Roman Catholic monks or priests who had taken vows of celibacy, vows of perpetual singleness. They'd taken vows of poverty. And they began to search the scriptures and realize those were unlawful. We should never have taken that. So what did they do? They recognized what we must do, not only what we may do, what we must do is renounce those unlawful vows. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, I quoted this last week, or two weeks ago, but it bears repeating. This is in question 113. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? Listen to to how this is, is answered 
The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required and the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our oaths and vows if lawful, and fulfilling them if of things unlawful. Now notice very carefully what what is argued here from the scriptures. It is not merely the case that if we've made an unlawful vow, we may break it. It's that if we've made an unlawful vow, we must break it. It's not an option. Because to bind ourselves to something unlawful is sinful, but then to follow through on it is doubly so. Fulfilling an unlawful vow is a violation of the third commandment. There's, there's no wiggle room on this. So, having laid out some of the scriptural case for this, let's go back now to Jephthah. With some of these categories in mind, and thinking about these common errors, let's go back to Judges 11 and look at Jephthah. And let's consider the nature of the vow that he made. In Judges 11, verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah's vow was wrong from the very beginning. Now, but why? Having looked now at the scriptures, what was wrong with Jephthah making the vow to begin with? Well, first, it was unnecessary. There was no command of the Lord here. There was no necessity of him making a vow. In fact, as I mentioned during the sermon two weeks ago, what this, what this reveals is a pagan way of thinking in Jephthah's mind. He's thinking like the nations around him. He's thinking that I have to somehow obligate and bind my God to act on my behalf. I've got to manipulate my God here by means of a vow in order to get what I need or what I want. The vow was wholly unnecessary. It was not commanded of God. Therefore, he should never have made it. But it's even worse than that. That would have been enough to say it should never have been done. But it was a vow that was based on chance. Look what he says. Verse 31, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. In the ESV, you'll see a footnote there if you're reading from this, this copy, and the the footnote there for whatever, you'll see it's whoever, which is probably more accurate rendering. Because what did he expect to come out of his house? N- not a goat. Not a lamb. Not a dove. But a human being. Jephthah knew or should have known that what was likely to come out of his house in fulfillment of this vow was a person. And and there is no circumstance in which to offer the sacrifice of a human being could ever be lawful. There's no no chance of that whatsoever. 
Jephthah made a vow that was inherently, was going to be unlawful. Even if it wasn't his own precious only daughter that came out of the house, it was going to be a servant of his. Or some person in his household. The vow was inevitably going to involve human sacrifice, which in every circumstance is always, always, always forbidden. And then, to make matters even worse, we see in verse 34 and 5, Jephthah comes home, his only daughter comes out of the house. In verse 35, as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Jephthah, not only was it true that he could take back the vow because it was unlawful, but that he must. He was obligated by the name of God himself to renounce the unlawful vow and accept whatever consequences would come from the Lord for having sinned in the first place. Jephthah should have renounced the vow because it was unlawful. God would never ask his people to take a vow to commit an unlawful act. And he certainly would not expect them to follow through on that unlawful act because of a vow. To take a vow is to assert the name of God, and to assert the name of God for an unlawful or holy thing is contrary to the very nature of God. But we have to evaluate more than Jephthah's heart and motives. We have to ask the Spirit of God to search our own hearts, our own motives, our own words and actions. And I read to you the very first part of a quote from Thomas Manton earlier. Doctrine is but the drawing of the bow. Application is the hitting of the mark. This is from his exposition in James chapter 4. But he goes on to say, Whenever you hear, let the light of every truth be reflected upon your own souls. Never leave it till you have gained the heart, gained the heart to a sense of duty, and a resolution for duty. It is not merely enough that we can examine the Scriptures and then come back in a sort of academic forensic sense and cast judgment upon Jephthah. It's right for us to do that. He's justly condemned. But we also have to search and apply this in our own souls. In what ways are, are we frivolous in the use of God's name? In what ways are, are we fast and loose with the truth? In what ways do we call upon God as, as a witness between us and men, and we do so falsely? In what ways do we profane God's name in those ways? What's pressed upon us here is, is a call to flee to Christ as the one and only man who fulfilled these things perfectly, in whom there was no falsehood whatsoever, in whom was nothing but perfection in, in thought, word, and deed. And we have a promise that if we are in him, then all of his spotless perfection is, is ours by faith. Not only has he cleansed our sin and pardoned us from all, all of our transgressions, but he's given his own perfect righteousness in our stead. Will you seek to honor the very holy name of God in every word that you speak, will you recognize that when, when you speak falsely, you're reflecting upon the name and the character of God himself? 
and then if called upon in a solemn occasion, will you invoke the name of God with fear and reverence? With, with a clear conscience to say, yes, I can raise my right hand on a, on a, on a lawful occasion and say, I, I do swear. Because this is right and just for me to use God's name in this way. If I stand before a jury and stand before a judge and raise my hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, what am I saying? God is Lord of this courtroom too. And he will call all of us to account for what is said here. We are exalting the name of Christ, giving him his due position of authority. But I wanted to, to address some of these, these matters in, in this sermon, again, a little different than what, how I normally would handle something, because I don't believe this is merely a hypothetical thing or merely an academic exercise. It is, it is not far-fetched for us to consider uh, pastoral situations or situations that could come into the body of Christ with which we will have to counsel someone, you need to renounce that. You've made a false vow. And again, I, I'm going I'm to give you a, a hypothetical scenario, but it's not, a, it's not a far-fetched one. What if there are two men who have stood before witnesses, who stood before God, pledging themselves in marriage to one another? They said, till death do we part. I've given my vow. One of them comes to faith in Christ. Repents of his sin comes to church and says, what do I do? I made a vow. How would you counsel that brother? How would you counsel a woman in a similar situation? Again, these are not far-fetched things, are they? What would you do? Well, I hope you would say, not only may you renounce that vow, you must. It is unlawful for you to try to keep that vow. You are furthering your sin if you try to keep it. So these are not merely academic exercises. These are necessary things for the people of Christ to understand and, under, and, and know how to apply God's word to these circumstances. We ought not to use God's name frivolously. But we also not, not believe that we are bound to something unlawful because we have spoken rashly or because we've bound ourselves in some way. We think we honor God more by continuing in sin than we do by saying, God, you are merciful. I have sinned. Will you get me out of this? May God help us to see his word rightly, to apply it faithfully among ourselves for the sake of our, for the sake, first of all, the name of, of Christ, but also for the sake of our testimony before a watching world. Uh, we don't need to be muddy in our mind on these matters. We need to be clear according to the scriptures. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that your, your word is a sure guide to us. I thank you for uh, the occasions to to study an issue further together, uh, to seek to look for to your word as our sure and certain and infallible guide. I, I pray that you will press upon us not only the errors of Jephthah, the errors of our culture, the hypothetical situations that we can think of, but that you will press these things into our own hearts. Your spirit is truth. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would search us, cause us to be men and women of truth, cause us to live before a world that is marked by deception. And may you be pleased to cause us to shine uh, brightly as, as a light in the darkness, as those who speak 
with truth because we trust in the name of the true and living God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.